All right, you guys ready? All right, Colossians chapter 4, open your Bibles there. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to conclude the epistle of Colossians today. Thank you, Lord. It's been a fruitful study. There's a ton in here, uh, lots to get into. Um, And, you know, maybe you're just joining us today, and and let me just bring you up to speed. Maybe you've been here. Let me remind you. uh, the, The whole big idea of the book of Colossians, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century church uh, in Colossae. And what it does is it details what the Christian life ought to look like when we are anchored in Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that we're going to anchor to something in life. Uh, and and, and y- we choose different things to anchor to. Some people anchor to power. Some people anchor to prestige or to some sort of a position. Some people anchor to a person. They, uh, you know, a gal will find some man that it represents the embodiment of her hopes and her dreams and she'll anchor her life to him. Some people anchor their lives to a career, to, to some sort of a, of a job or some personal ability. Uh, and then other people anchor their lives to Christ. No matter what you anchor your life to, that anchor will ultimately be tested. And, and anything that we anchor to other than Christ will ultimately fail, will ultimately let us down. Uh, and so uh, what Paul is, is imploring uh, these in Colossae to do is, is he's saying, listen, I'm writing to you as believers and I'm telling you, don't listen to the people that are trying to tell you that that Jesus isn't God. Don't listen to the people that are trying to get you to trust in, in other things. I'm trying to exhort you, Paul would say to the Colossians, as those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, to anchor to him. And, and what Paul says is that because Jesus is God, that when we anchor our lives to him, Well, what he says, the result is that we will be saved by him, we will be raised with him, and ultimately we will be glorified together with him. And accordingly, Paul maintains that the corresponding implication of this truth, this is what he he builds to, is that our lives should be lived for him. Because we're saved by him, raised with him, glorified together with him, then we should live for him. And this living for Jesus is called sanctification. Big Christian word, simple meaning. It means to be set apart to God. It means that we are, we're sanctified. We're set apart from the things of the world and we're set apart to God. That's what sanctification means. And the Bible teaches that sanctification is God's will for us. Paul says this in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that, that sanctification is God's will for us. As a matter of fact, sanctification is so important. Paul's imploring those in Colossae that they need to be sanctified. Fully half of his book, uh, of his letter to them, this, uh, this epistle to the Colossians, revolves around Jesus is God, so what's that mean to you who've professed faith in him and he's focusing on sanctification, fully half of the work committed to that and it's so important and it's God's will for you that what happens later is that after Paul dies, 
Then Peter writes an epistle of his own, 1 Peter, and it goes out to all of these churches uh, in in modern-day Turkey that Paul founded, uh, the Colossians being one of them. And in that letter, Peter again is, is imploring the believers of the needfulness and the importance of sanctification. I'll put it on the screen for you, 1 Peter 3.15. Here's what Peter says. He says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, <clears throat> this, this uh, imploring of Peter to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Um, this is one of those very rare instances where I like the New, Tran- New Living Translation, uh, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, and, I, and I, I use it. It's good for sort of color commentary. But in this very rare instance, I think the New Living Translation does a better job of, of defining what it means to live a sanctified life. Listen to the way they translate this verse, uh, where, whereas Peter says in the 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 uh, King James or the, the New King James Version, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. The New Living Translation says this way, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. So the idea of sanctifying Jesus as uh, in our hearts, the Lord God in your hearts, he says, hey, you got to worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And I think that says it perfectly for us. So that sums it up wonderfully because There is many Christians who ascribe to the idea of, oh yeah, that's, you know, I'm I'm a Christian and I believe what the Bible teaches, but but their life doesn't match up. If 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 you were to to have what they say they believe and then a picture of their life and you were to superimpose the one over the other, it doesn't match up. There is an incongruity, an inconsistency. And, and, and so the idea is, listen, if I'm going to call him Lord, then I need to live as though he is Lord. If he's not uh, Lord of all, it's been said, he's not Lord at all. And so this is, this is that idea. And the big idea that Paul has built to and that he really dedicates the majority of, of this last half of this epistle is basically to tell us, hey, listen, we need to be sanctified. We need to worship Christ as the Lord of our life. And, and, and then he expands on how we do that. He says we need to seek the things that are above, not the things below. He says we need to set our mind on the things above. He says we need to be sanctified by putting to death our, our earthly nature and lusts. He says we need to be sanctified by putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And, and when he talks about sanctification, you know, we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's the work of Christ on the cross for our behalf. There's nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about once you've come into a saving faith in Christ, once you believe that he died on the cross in your place for your sin, and you, and you believe that he is God who did this work and that he extends to you this offer of, of forgiveness by grace through faith. Once you get that and once you enter into that relationship with him, now it's that time to worship God as the Lord of your life and the things that you do, this idea of sanctification. And it is all those things. 
And then what happens now is Paul, he moves into just looking at some very practical implications of, of sanctification, what it looks like in, in, in our marriage. What, it, what is it to be sanctified to God uh, as a husband and a wife? What is it to be sanctified, set apart to God in our parenting? What is it to be sanctified and set apart to God in our work? And, and, and we looked at all of these things. Last week, we looked at what is it to be sanctified, set apart to God in our prayer life. And today, Paul's going to conclude the epistle, and he's going to focus on three more areas of sanctification. He's going to look at, uh, at what it is to be sanctified, set apart to God in our walk, what it is to be sanctified in our words, and what it is to be sanctified in our witness. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's jump right into it. We left off in verse 5. We're going to look at what is it to be sanctified in our walk. Sanctification in our walk. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Paul says we need to be sanctified in our walk, and he hits three areas, three subsection areas, with, with three key aspects of our walk. We are to walk in wisdom, we are to walk toward unbelievers, and we are to redeem the time. I'd like to break this down with you real quickly. Um, walking in wisdom, Proverbs 4, 5 through 7, instructs us to get wisdom, get understanding, do not forget, uh, nor turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake wisdom, and she will preserve you. Love her, and, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Solomon, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this to his son, and like every father, when you're talking to your son, you have a, we repeat ourselves, don't we? And we're just making it abundantly clear. The, guy, the, the son's like, I get it. I got it. I got it. I don't think you did. And we just keep pressing it. And so he's saying, get wisdom in all you're getting. Get understanding. It's the principal thing. Get it. Do you get it? You need to get wisdom, right? And so he's just driving this over again. Now, wisdom is the principal thing. And wisdom is defined this way. It's defined as knowledge that is skillfully applied. We've all met those people that are really smart and they, practically speaking, are the stupidest people you ever met. You ever met somebody like that? They're really smart and they are not wise. And, and there are, some of you are like, I'm married to him. And, and so there are people that, are, you know, they, they have knowledge but man, they don't skillfully apply it. We see this attitude and this idea of the needfulness of having knowledge and applying it uh, to, as well as just, just getting it from your head to your heart and to your hands and to your feet. It's reflected in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Very similar command, and, and the, the idea there, again, there's information, or rather wisdom, consists of both information and execution. Information is useless if you don't execute it, and that's what's being conveyed here. And Paul implies when he says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What he's implying there is that you can walk in a way that is unwise. And there are many that does it. And he says, basically, you got to have your head on a swivel because you got to walk circumspectly, looking all around because there are opportunities in life to make some really poor choices and to, and to, to have those instances where you've got all the knowledge, 
but you don't, but you're not applying it. You, you, you had the opportunity with the knowledge that you had to walk in a way that was wise by skillfully applying that knowledge, but you blew it and you didn't do this. Case in point, uh, I'm reminded of a parachute jumper in Lewisburg, North Carolina. His name was Ivan McGuire. And uh, Ivan was a very experienced parachutist. Uh, He had over 800 jumps. And uh, that day on April 5th, he is jumping with a bunch of his friends. He's wearing a helmet cam. He jumps out. Maybe you've seen the footage. And and everybody is all just pumped on adrenaline and all the shots. And it's like, ah, you know. And they're getting ready to jump out of the plane. And then they're all dancing for the camera and everything and cheering and shouting and And then one by one, his friends start to pull the ripcord and they all start to, you know, their parachutes are deploying. And then all of a sudden, it comes time for Ivan to deploy his parachute and you see the camera get crazy and come to find out he forgot to put his parachute on. The man jumped without a parachute. I've seen the footage. It's pretty unsettling. And and they were interviewing, the local news was interviewing the Franklin County Sheriff's Deputy, Ralph Brown, after the fact. And here's what he said. He said, there was no uh, foul play or evidence of suicide. It appears that he simply forgot to put on his parachute. He said, but a man who has made over 800 jumps ought to remember his parachute. And and I I tell you that story because I think it's a good analogy of this needfulness to walk in wisdom. See, because we are supposed to to put on Christ, and the issue is is that oftentimes we don't. We don't. We're we're like this guy who jumps without without his parachute. We know better. And and what I want you to note is that the focus here, what what, what Paul is saying, he's, he's saying that there's a needfulness to walk in wisdom and, and, and how it, it, it has a profound effect on those around us. Wisdom or the lack thereof can profoundly affect the people that are around us. Again, wisdom, knowledge, skillfully applied. The way that you wear the wisdom that you have as a, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, will inevitably impact the people that are around us. See, the, the issue, walk in wisdom, well, you know, what I think of is that when it comes to a witness, when it comes to the way that, that, that I model Christ for the people around me in terms of, of how I walk in wisdom or how I don't, um, I can lead other people astray. I can, by my actions, get people to the place, we're talking about unbelievers, where they can look at my life and they can say, that's Christianity? Yeah, I'll pass. Because it doesn't seem to be working out so well for you. In fact, I would say, and 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 this is just my own personal opinion, 20 years in ministry, I think Christians that live as hypocrites is one of, if not the biggest reason why people reject Jesus Christ. Because I think the world looks on and they say people who profess faith and they don't live like it, they, they talk about heaven, they live like hell, and, and what happens is people look on and they say, you're a joke. Your God's a joke, you're a joke. If that's the way it works out for you, I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
And, and here's, there's a, there's a thousand applications I can give for this. And, and what I want to do, I, I just feel led of the Lord just to kind of take this angle on it. We're talking about walking in wisdom towards those who are outside. What I want to do is I want to address you parents for a minute. Because I think that a lot of times we think about, you know, you could read this verse, oh, I got to walk in wisdom because, you know, I'm going to affect uh, the unbelievers that, that I might come in contact in the, in the world. And then that's true. But then we never think about our, our very own children that we're raising. And so, you know, biblically what comes to my mind is King David. When you read through 1 Samuel, you see a man who was walking in wisdom. And there's, there's an abundance of fruit in his life. He's not without trouble. He's not without trial. We see him being persecuted and, and, and all, but he, he withstands the persecution. He honors God. God blesses him. God honors him. God raises him up to be the king of Israel. And they're having victory over their enemies and the kingdom is flourishing. And it's wonderful. And then you get to 2 Samuel. And it's going good for a while, but then what happens is we read in, in about the middle of 2 Samuel, it tells us that David stopped walking in wisdom. David had this opportunity. It was the springtime when kings go off to war. The, the scripture makes it abundantly clear. This is a time to, to work and there's business to be done. And, and the, there were enemies of the Lord that, that he had to go out and fight against. It said, but David stayed home. Automatically, right out the gate, telling us he's not walking in wisdom. And then it tells us he went up on the roof to go for a walk. And the way that it's phrased there, it just means to, to meander, walking without aim or purpose. And as he was up there on the roof, many of you familiar with the story, his next door neighbor, she's out taking a bath naked on, you know, at her house. And, and he's, you know, saying, all right, bring her to me. And, you know, there, here, this woman's a married woman. Her husband's one of David's most loyal men out on the battlefield doing what David should have been doing. And so here you've got a man who's in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. He's not walking in wisdom. And, and, and what happens? Well, the consequences just begin to flow. They just, they just begin to, 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 to go like crazy. You know, here she gets pregnant he tries to bring, you know, her soldier husband home so, you know, he can cover it up. Hey, go, you know, go sleep with your wife. The man has so much integrity, he won't. He, he doesn't leave the palace, and so David gets him drunk. And that doesn't, you know, work. And so David kills her husband, has him killed in battle. And, and then the whole story ends with, with one little sentence because David thinks he got away, away with it. Has Uriah, her husband, killed in battle, moves her into his house after he's killed. Oh, I'm going to come across as the hero. I'm consoling this poor widowed gal, I'll take, I'll take her as my bride, you know, kind of thing. And it says in the final sentence there, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Because he wasn't walking in wisdom. He was walking in sin. And what I want you to see, parents, is the effect that this had on his whole family. Because throughout after, as you read through the remainder of 2 Samuel, what you see is a man who once walked in wisdom, who once brought great glory and honor to God, and now he's brought shame and discredit, and he's brought death to his own house. His child, his youngest child, dies as a direct result of his sin. 
His, his son Amnon goes it subsequently and behaves just like his dad. He sees a woman that he wants to have sex with and he forces himself on her and rapes her. It happens to be his stepsister. And, 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 he, and he, he, um, he rapes her. And so Absalom, one of David's other sons, becomes so enraged that he ultimately kills Amnon for what he's done. Again, like father, like son. Oh, I saw how dad handled a situation. He had the guy kill. I'll just kill him. So he, he kills him. Uh, Absalom subsequently, you know, uh, you know, dad betrayed God. I'll betray my dad. Takes his kingdom and, 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 and you know, steals the kingdom from him. David behaved unwisely, and the repercussions rippled throughout his life. He was in a place he shouldn't have been. He was doing things that he shouldn't have done, and it destroyed his family. Let me ask you a question. Are you in a place that you shouldn't be? Are you doing things that you shouldn't be doing? Are you behaving wisely? Are you walking in wisdom? Or are you behaving unwisely? Or are you walking as a fool? See, we're supposed to be circumspect. And here's the thing that, that, that blows my mind. As I consider David and as, just as a student of life, have you ever been amazed at how quickly somebody can destroy their entire life? It happens like that. You can spend your whole lifetime building a reputation and you can destroy it in an instant by behaving unwisely. And so Paul says, listen, You need to walk in wisdom. And you know, he adds to that, not only do we need to walk in wisdom, but he says that in walking in wisdom, we need to walk towards unbelievers. See, the idea here is that we have an obligation and a calling to reach the lost for Christ. You know, in in April 1912, when the Titanic struck uh, that iceberg and sank, there was all kinds of stories that came out uh, of uh, of that fateful night. And one of one of the stories that came out concerned quartermaster uh, Robert Hitchens, and he was in charge of lifeboat number six. And he had a lot of of women on that lifeboat, and one of the women on the lifeboat was a gal named Molly Brown. She became known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. And here's why: because there were As they were in that lifeboat, Robert Hitchens could not get away from the sinking Titanic quick enough. He saw some obscure light on the horizon. He reasoned it was a a ship, and he said, we're going to set sail towards that. He was yelling at these women, start rowing. He wouldn't even row the boat. He was going to, you know, sit back and and do the, the steering. But he's yelling at these women, start rowing towards that light. And they're saying, well, wait, 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 we have room in our boat. And there's all these people in the water, and they're screaming for help. And he was a coward, and he would not help. He refused to help. Finally, he he had a mutiny on board, and it was led by Molly Brown. And she said, listen, you're either going to help these women, or I'm going to throw you overboard. And she came to be known as the unsinkable Molly Brown because she refused. She said that, well, they said the Titanic was unsinkable. I'll tell you who's unsinkable. Molly Brown is unsinkable. We're going to help these people. And they, they mutinied. They took over the boat. Robert Hitchens ended up having to go before a tribunal because he refused to rescue people. All these women bearing witness against him for what he refused to do. Can I tell you, we live on the Titanic. This sucker's going down and God's called you to rescue people. 
And I want to ask you, who is in your life that God has strategically placed there? Who is God placed that he's calling you to walk in wisdom toward them? To redeem the time, to, to be mindful of the fact that people are going to hell. One famous evangelist was talking and he said, listen, I want to talk to you about all the people who are going to hell and most of you don't give a damn. And they were all shocked and then he said, and you know what, what concerns me the most is that most of you are freaked out right now because I just said the word damn and you're not freaked out about the people that are going to hell. We are called to walk in wisdom towards those around us. Listen, we have an obligation. God has placed people around you. I just want you to ask, ask you the question, who's God placed in your circle of influence that he's calling you to reach? He's calling you to reach out to. It begins with our walk, walking in wisdom towards that unbeliever. My father, several years ago, he was in the hospital. He had an angioplasty done and he had, a, you know, couple of days to recover, and I went to go see him in the hospital. My mom was there, and we had a good visit. And in the course of our visit, I could hear in, he, was, he had a shared room and a curtain, you know, separating the two beds, and, and I could hear the man in the next bed over, and he's on the phone, and he's calling, he's looking for a rehab to let him in. And you can just hear, I mean, you're right there. You can hear everything, and the guy is, is just, you know, he's, he's kind of holding back tears, and he's talking about how his life's a train wreck, and he really needs to get some help, and he really needs to get into a rehab. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm there, and I'm talking with my dad, and, and, and so I'm, I finish up the conversation. I'm like, okay, Dad, uh, I, I love you. I'll, I'll see you later. And I, and I leave, and I start walking. And I get about halfway down the hall, and the Lord's like, what are you doing? You hurt, you hurt. What do I got to do? You, you're there. This is what you do. I placed you there. Your dad's there. You're in the room. I mean, what, do, do, you, want a, do you want an engraved invitation? I'm like, oh man. I turn around. I go back in the room and my, mom, my mom's there and she, she brightens. She says, oh, you're back to see me. I'm not here to see you, mom. And I walked by and I go in there. I'm like, you know, excuse me. Can, can I talk to you for a minute? Because I, I couldn't help but overhear. And I get the opportunity to share Christ with this man and to pray with him. I walk out, my mom has, she's pale. My mom loves the Lord, she's, but she, her eyes are as big as plates, man. She's looking at me and she just mouths the word. She can't even say it out loud. She's like, you're so bold. I'm like, no, I'm so busted. <laughs> because I should have done this, you know, 10 minutes ago. See, who's God placed in your path? Because the thing is, is that people are going to hell. And we are called to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, towards those who are perishing. Some of that, again, it's, it's your own family, because you are walking like a fool, you're living like a fool, and your kids are suffering for it. They're going to grow up and they're going to deny your faith because of the way that you live your life. I know that's the word of the Lord for someone here. So I'm just asking you to, to, to consider this. And here's the, the final thing that Paul adds. He says, redeem the time. We have to walk in wisdom. We have to walk towards those that are, that are, that are in the outside, those that are unbelievers, those that are going to hell. We need, we need to care and we need to redeem the time. See, because I think one of the great lies of the enemy is that we have plenty of time. And that's a lie. 
Because the fact is, tomorrow's promised to no man. In the book of James, chapter 4, here's what the Bible says. It says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such a city, such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Last December, Pastor Levi Lusco, um, who pastors a church in Montana, his five-year-old daughter sudden, had a sudden and severe asthma attack, and, and she died. She actually died in his arms. And uh, it happened right before Christmas, and uh, it was just a super huge tragedy. And he wrote a blog this week, which just moved me to tears. And, and uh, basically, he talked about how, you know, those of you that have lived in snowy climates, you know that anything you've got out in your yard, when the snow hits, you've lost it for the season. It just disappears. And, uh, and then the spring comes and everything thaws out. Well, they had a patio uh, or a, a table, patio table that was out in the snow. And so buried under all the snow and the springtime comes and now the snow all starts to melt. And he talked about how that there was this, as the snow melted off the table, there was this little pile of stones. And his daughter said, yeah, those were lenyas, his daughter who died. She was collecting them. And and he recalled in the the blog, he he said, I remember she always used to collect these stones. And I don't know what's going on in her little mind if she thought they were, you know, she pretended they were sapphires or they were rubies. And here's what he went on to write. I'll I'll read it for you. He said, quote, On that table, they sat during the cold months waiting to be discovered as a different kind of treasure, a note tucked in a bottle. Once the snow melted, there they were. They delivered both cherished memories and a clear message. Time is short. Time is precious. It's fleeting. You never know when it will run out. Life rushes by and it waits for no one. You will never find time for the most important things. You must choose to make time. If you aren't careful, the tyranny of the urgent will rob your life of true significance, which is Jesus and people. These are all that will seem weighty in the final analysis. It is tremendously difficult, especially in this crazy, fast-paced world we live in. But you have to fight to be present and focused for what matters the most. So, I'm asking you in regards to redeeming the time towards those that are perishing, God has placed people in your life that I will never meet. But he's placed you there because they need to know him. And the time is short. You don't know how much time you will have to affect that person for eternity. And God's called each one of us to redeem the time. Well, not only does Paul look at being sanctified in our walk, he moves on and talks about the sanctification of our words, being sanctified in our words. He says in verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech always be seasoned with, with, with grace, right? Let it always, always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Um, you know, the definition of grace is, is where we, we give something to someone that doesn't deserve it. Grace is unmerited favor. That's the definition. And what happens is so often in, in our words, we don't give people grace. We give them what they got coming. 
See, because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Here's what I've discovered in my sinful flesh. A harsh word feels good when you say it. He's got it coming, man, and I'm going to give it to him. My wife, uh, this last week, she's she's the true Christian in our marriage. I'm a faker, I think. Um, She convicts me all the time just by the way she lives her life, but uh, she's so mortified when I use her in illustrations like this, but she's not here, so I get to do that. she took, she took her dad to the, to the doctor, and um, she had to go to the laboratory. And, you know, they, they were, they had like four, it's, it's insult to injury when, you, when you're sick, and you have to deal with insurance companies and doctor's offices and waiting and, and their capricious rules and all these things. And so she goes to the lab. He's got to get this lab work done. And they were, they were horrible to her. They were rude to her when she brought her dad in. Her dad, this is the umpteenth appointment. He's pale. He's cool. He's diaphoretic. He's going to pass out. She says, do you, have, do you have a place where you can lay down? No, sorry. You out of luck. They could care less. She's like, the man just had open heart surgery. He needs a place to lie down or he's going to collapse on your floor. Now, she said it as she would say. That's the way I would say it. She said it a lot nicer than that. It's like, he's going he's gonna to wind up on your floor. Is there any place, please? Yes, then there's a... And it's always with this, there, my wife is, please, thank you. I'm so grateful for... And they're like less than helpful. And, you know, she says, um, can, can... Okay, now, can... Uh, he needs something. They'd asked her for something. I need to, to go out to the car. Can I go out and get it? Yeah, all right, go ahead, go fine. They lock the door behind her. It's lunchtime. And they won't let her back in. Her dad's inside. She's outside. She's banging on the door. They're like, you're out of luck. And she waits for another patient to come out. And then she goes in. They give her a dirty look. I'm going to be with my dad. What, you're not going to, you don't care about him. She's caring for her father. And then, uh, you know, it's time to take him out. Do you guys have a wheelchair maybe that I could just use? No, sorry, you're going to have to figure it out. We don't know. This, that, I mean, seriously, is their attitude. And uh, so she runs next door to the urgent care. They graciously let her use the, the wheelchair. You think they'd help? You think they'd open the door? You think they'd hold the door open? Nothing like that. Now, me, in that situation, somebody would have gotten every bit of what I had to give them. And my wife, instead, she says, God bless you. Thank you. I know you're trying to help me. Thank you so much. I'm like, let me teach you how to talk to these people. You get a little. <laughs> and, um, she, and, my, and she said this. She said, I wanted to keep a, a good Christian witness. That was her conscious thought. I wanted, I wanted to represent Christ well. I thought, man, can you lead me to Christ? Because I need some of what you got. Um, and the thing is, it's grace. We, we're called to let our speech be with grace. And that's why. Because people are watching you. What's that corny poem? You're writing the gospel, a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. And people read what you write, whether it's faithless or true. Hey, what's the gospel according to you? You know, people watch. The things we say, they matter. They're important. They're supposed to be seasoned with with grace. And and Paul also says that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. Now, salt was very important in the first century. It served a number of purposes. It wasn't just to enhance the flavor as we primarily know it today, but it also served as a preservative. There was no refrigeration in that day, and so salt was used to preserve meats and, and, and other perishable foods. It also purifies. Salt, interestingly, is, is a hypotonic. 
And, and so in, in this issue of osmosis, if you add a hypotonic, what happens is your body's constantly trying to maintain an equilibrium. And so if you add a hypoton, hypotonic solution, what it does is it pulls the other fluids in the body through the semipermeal membrane there and it, and it, and it seeks to, to even out this, this, this uh, uh, level. Right, and, and so a hypotonic solution draws uh, fluids away. And, and so what would happen is when a person was injured, they would put salt on the wound. It hurts like crazy, but it draws all the fluid out. And so it, it, it purifies in a sense. If you've got an infection, they would, they would add salt to it. That's why you know, a lot of people, when they get cut, and if they're you know, in the salt water a lot, they'll notice that their wounds you know, heal a lot, unless you're swimming in the L.A. basin, and then you get sepsis. But at any rate... Um, it purifies. And so what Paul's saying is our speech needs to be seasoned with salt. What he's saying is there's a wisdom that's indicated in how we speak to people because different situations and circumstances dictate that we speak to people in different ways. Sometimes our speech needs to be flavor-enhancing. Uh, Proverbs 16.24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And sometimes it's just those pleasant words. Uh, sometimes our speech is to be a preservative. Uh, King Solomon talking to his son in Proverbs chapter 2, uh, he said, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And, and so there, there is this, this needfulness that we need to sometimes have our speech be flavor-enhancing, sometimes have our speech act as a preservative. There are those times when our speech needs to be purifying. Again, Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. What that means is that your enemy is going to lie to you. You look great. Awesome. You know, can I, can I get you another rib? Can I get you another pork chop, fatty? I mean, uh, can, I, can I help you out? Whatever it is. Your enemy's going to lie to you. Your friend's going to say, hey, you know what? You might want to put down the fork, friend. <laughs> you know? That ain't so healthy for you. You know? And so your friend is going gonna, is gonna to tell you the things that, that you need to hear. And so there is this, this needful sanctification in our words. And finally, and I want to spend just a little bit more time with this one. Um, Paul talks about the sanctification in our witness. Now, what, what I want to do is I want to look through, uh, just, he goes through a bunch of different names here, and the mistake would be for us. A lot of times you get to the, to, to the conclusion of an epistle, and what Paul has here from verses, you know, really 7 through 18, is, is just some, from, some final salutations to a bunch of different people, and, and what we would do is we would make a big mistake just to go, well, he's, you know, he's saying, you know, that he's sending Tychicus and, and uh, Tychicus, or however you want to pronounce it, I always pronounce it Tychicus, and uh, there's this Onesimus guy, and, and Aristarchus, and, and all, and we would just blow through that. I don't want to blow through that because there's a lot of stuff here for us. And the, the, the idea here, we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about how we live a life that's separated to God, that's separated from the things of the world. And there's a powerful issue here of sanctification in our witness. We can be set apart to God in, in the witness of how we live our life. So what I want to do with you as in, in our final minutes here is I want to look at these people who lived lives that were separated to God. And I want to glean just some, some quick application for us, okay? And so he starts off in verse 7. 
And he says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now, this guy, Tychicus, he, he's, uh, we originally read about him in, in Acts chapter 20. And here is a man who traveled with Paul and he faithfully served with Paul. And, and so he's a man that, that uh, is, is, you know, he, can you imagine having the Apostle Paul say of you that you're a beloved brother, that you're a faithful minister, and that you're a fellow servant? And here he is. He's all these things. And, and Paul says in verse 8, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Now, this guy wasn't catching a plane. He wasn't getting on a bus and, and, and going. He wasn't hopping in a car. And it was, it was like a thousand miles from, from Rome to Colossae. I mean, this was, this was no small commitment. And you can imagine that going through Paul, if you've read through the book of Acts, it, it wasn't any picnic. He went through trial and circumstance and hardship, and now he's going to have that. Again, a lot of people mistakenly think that when you come to Christ, it's like, you know, when you pay, play a country western record backwards, you get your truck back, you get your dog back, you get your wife back, it's puppy dogs and butterflies, everything's, I come to Christ and everything. No, you don't. You come to Christ and oftentimes there's hardship and there's persecution and there's trials and God uses all of those because he's perfecting you and he's, and basically he's, he's He's using those to mold and to shape you. And those are going to affect how you minister to other people. See, that's super important here because what, what he says there in verse 8 is, look, I'm sending Tychicus to you, a guy who's been through it with me, a guy who's going to go through it just to get there to you. And he's going to minister to you in your circumstances. And how can he minister to you in your circumstances? Because he's been through his own circumstances. In order to have a testimony, you have to have a test and you have to have a money. I mean, there's things that go through your life, right? Our testimonies come through our hardships, our trials, our persecutions, and we come through this. And now I have a testimony to tell you, hey, listen, you can get through it because God brought me through it. And so he's sending Tychicus for this very purpose. Now he moves on. He's sending Tychicus with another guy. This is Onesimus. Onesimus, he describes a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which, which are happening here. Now, Paul says, hey, Onesimus is one of you. If you were with us when we went through the book of Philemon, you'll remember. Onesimus was a slave and he ran away from his owner and chances are he ripped his owner off when he ran away from him, stole money from him. And so here he was and he ran away of all places to Rome and he runs right into the Apostle Paul. Talk about the providence of God. Paul probably led him to, to Onesimus to Christ. He became a faithful man to minister to Paul while he was in prison there in Rome. And ultimately, Paul said to Onesimus, you need to make it right with your owner. You need to go back. And so he wrote the book of Philemon to, to, to go back, uh, you know, there for him to take back. Now, Onesimus is on his way to do that. 
He's going to deliver this epistle of Colossians. He's, he's, he's you know, going to be going back to, to his owner. And what he says of him is, listen, he's a faithful and a beloved brother. He's one of you. They, he's got a ministry, both he and Tychicus, make known to you all the things that are happening here. Here's the point of application for you and me. Do you think that Onesimus had a scary thing to do in his obedience to Christ by going back to his slave owner who he ripped off? Yeah, because in this culture, the guy could have killed him. He could have crucified him. That was the most common way that they dealt with runaway slaves. So he risked being crucified. He risked having all sorts of, you know, hardship but it was the right thing to do. It's what God had called him to do. And so he was serving the Lord by, in doing this. And in, and in obedience of going back, God is now using him as you're faithful and little. God will make you faithful and much. And the point of application is that when we obey God, sometimes it's very difficult. But it opens up for us many opportunities to bring God glory and to honor and to be used by God in expanding ways. By the way, Onesimus, his name means profitable. And that, you know, what Paul is saying is, look, he's faithful and he's beloved. He's one of you. And he tells Philemon in the epistle he wrote to him, look, I know you think he's unprofitable, but I'm telling you, he's profitable. Kind of a play on his name. Hey, let me talk to you about profitable. I know you think he's unprofitable, but I'm telling you, profitable is indeed profitable. It's the way the Lord looks at us. He moves on. He talks about Aristarchus. He says, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, we don't know what those instructions were. Evidently, he had instructions for them about John Mark. But he talks about these two men here, Aristarchus and Mark. Let me tell you about Aristarchus. You read about Aristarchus in Acts 19 and in Acts 27. Uh, he, it tells us in Acts 19 that he went through the riot in Ephesus with Paul, which was like crazy ordeal. In Acts 27, he sailed with Paul to Rome. If you remember, that sailing with Paul to Rome uh, was not a pleasure cruise. They, they went, he was going as a prisoner. The boat hit a hurricane. It sank. They swam for their lives. They wound up on the island of Malta. They're cold. They're building a fire. Paul grabs a handful of sticks. A viper bites him, fixes itself to his hand. He shakes it off in the fire. God ends up doing these crazy things. And, and this, this man, Aristarchus, was with Paul throughout that, whore, that whole ordeal. And now what it says is, is he, he describes him as my fellow prisoner. So somewhere along the line, as he's serving with Paul, the Roman government says, hey, we think you're suspicious too, and they arrest him. Again, you serve after the Lord and you, and you commit yourself to the Lord and sometimes things happen and you're like, wait, what? I thought I was serving you. And God's like, trust me, you are. You're going through trial. You're going through hardship. And this was a faithful man. And, and, and Paul says, look, he's here with me. He sends you his greetings, sends you his love. And then he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, interesting thing about Mark. Mark was a kid who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And um, the, the Holy Spirit said in the church of Antioch, separated me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called him. These guys go out and, and, and Barnabas says, hey, you know, let's, let's bring my cousin Mark. 
and we find out he's his cousin here in Colossians. It doesn't tell us that in the book of Acts, but it all makes sense when you read it because what happened was they went on this trip and they got into the area of Galatia and, and the Galatian area was was there were some bad dudes. It was settled by the Gauls, uh, who were nomadic and warrior tribe. That's why they call them Galatian, the Gaulations. And, and so when they got there, you know, we don't know if it was that, if, if, if it was the neighborhood, if he didn't like Paul's leadership style, what it was. But I'll tell you what I think it is, total speculation on my part, total conjecture on my part. But John Mark, that's who this is, Mark, John Mark, he was raised by a rich single mom. And so I'll tell you my take on it. I think he was a mama's boy, and I think he got out into the real world, the hard issue of, of, of uh, missions, serving the Lord. He got into a rough area, and I, I, I think he got scared and ran home to mommy, left right in the middle of the work. And so later, they're going to go back on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas says, let's bring, let's bring John Mark. And Paul's like, sissy can stay home. We ain't bringing him. Just tell him to stay home and play with his Barbies because he's not coming with the men. You know, that's, again, total conjecture on my part, but I, I think there's something to it. But basically, they have a bitter parting. Barnabas, I'm the son of encouragement. Let's bring him. He's got to come. And, and Paul's like, I, I don't care who you are. I ain't bringing him. And so they split. He and Barnabas have a bitter disagreement, and they split. And the Bible tells us about that. Have, Christians having conflict with one another ain't nothing new. But God uses, works all things together for good. He doubles down. And so, so you have Barnabas. He takes, you know, John Mark, and he goes one way. And Paul takes Silas. He goes another way. God accomplishes twice as much work. God gets the glory. And here they are, all of that to say, Mark now is back serving with Paul. Paul counts him faithful. Paul counts him as needful. He'll say elsewhere, hey, send John Mark to me. I need him. This, this Mark would end up writing the gospel of Mark. Here's the lesson. Don't write people off. Don't write people off. How many times do we do that? We write people off. He's useful to the Lord. He, he wrote the gospel of Mark for crying out loud. I mean, we spent a year and a half going through the gospel of Mark. Rich, rich stuff. Don't write people off. He goes on and he says, um, verse 11, and Jesus who is called justice... These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And so he's talking about justice and he's talking about Mark, you know, being there, you know, these, these are uh, fellow Jews that, you know, the com- completed, converted Jews, believers in Christ. Uh, they're of the circumcision. They're a comfort to me. God's providentially using these guys in, in his life. Let me just tell you a brief about justice. Um, basically, um, he, we find out a little bit about him in, in Acts 18.7, and it, it tells us there that he hosted the church that Paul founded in Corinth. Paul went to the synagogue. They, they ran him out of town on a rail. And he said, you know, fine, you don't want me here. Well, hey, look next door. Here's a guy who loves Jesus. And, uh, and this was Justice. Justice opened his home and had the church. And, and so there's, there's this great ministry that takes place. Again, point, point of application. All of our service matters to God. He uses it abundantly. And here's this man who ended up opening his house, started a church in his house, ends up ministering, traveling with Paul, doing greater works. It applies to all of us. All of this stuff matters. When we read about these people and their testimony, their legacy, it matters to you and me. Because we go, that's what he did. What am I doing? 
Well, this guy planted a church, and he wasn't content just to plant a church. Then he traveled with Paul, planting other churches, going through all Paul's persecutions, hardships, trials, and they've proven to be a great comfort to me. Are you a comfort to someone? Maybe God's calling you to to, to just be a comfort to someone. Paul's going to say at the end of this epistle, just, hey, would you remember my chains? Totally uncharacteristic for Paul. He never said that. In this one, he says, look, I'm going to sign this with my own hand. Remember my chains. You don't think that man was hurting? He was hurting. He needs somebody just to, just to comfort him, just to encourage him. He says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. We saw him when we got introduced in the introduction to, the, to this book because he mentions him at the beginning of the book of Colossians, probably the pastor of this church uh, of Colossae. He's the one that traveled to Rome to tell Paul, hey, we got, we got trouble back in River City and, and I need some help. And he's the one that sought him out. For whatever reason, he's, he's not returning right now. We don't know why. Um, but he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Listen, this man couldn't physically be there for whatever reason, but he labored for them in prayer. And the application for us is that we need to labor in prayer. Reference last week's message, look at the clock, we don't have time to go into that, but just listen to last week's message, there's a major work that we need to do in prayer. Moving on, listen, here's what he says, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Listen, Luke, and and I'm just going to cut to the application, here's a man who was by trade a physician. He ended up traveling with Paul, Paul had physical ailments we know about, No doubt this man was his personal physician attending to him. The point of application is that you by vocation, you by training, you by knowledge, you have gifts, you have talents, you have abilities that you can use to bring glory and honor to God. You can use for the kingdom of God. You can use in service of God. And the Bible says, again, as we're faithful in little, God will make us faithful in much. And I want to just remind you that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Next to Paul, he's written, in terms of quantity, more of the New Testament than anyone else. And it's just a guy who, by vocation, was a, was a doctor, was a physician, just doing what he could in service of the Lord. What can you do in service of the Lord? We're going to skip over Demas. I'll come back to him. But he says in verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus, mentions him by name, and the church that is in his house. Nymphus was just a guy that opened his house up. All of you growth group hosts that open your house up, you're like Nymphus and, and God takes time to say, hey, I want you to greet him. Greet the brethren, greet Nymphus and the church that meets in his house. The church is in a building, it's the people, it's us. And he says, just greet him, give him, and give him some love. Here's a faithful man. And then he goes on and he says, verse 16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, their neighboring town. It's like Marietta and Temecula. And he says, make sure it's read there and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. We don't have that epistle now. Some speculate it's the book of Ephesians. Uh, I have my doubts. Um, but at any rate, uh, we don't have that. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, 
Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And I want to close on this point and I'll make it quick. What was Archippus's ministry? We don't have a clue. We don't know. He doesn't say. And I think that's a perfect thing. That's a perfect thing for us because the exhortation to Archippus is the exhortation to you and to me. The exhortation is this, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord. What ministry have you received from the Lord? Take heed to it. I skipped over Demas, and here's why, because I want to contrast Archippus with Demas. And basically, Paul doesn't have any accolades for Demas. He just says, and Demas. And I think why that is is because previously elsewhere he does have some accolades for Demas. Now here he doesn't. And I think what happened is that Paul's starting to see Demas turn. And here's what we come to find out about Demas. We read it uh, in 2 Timothy, where, where, which is the last book that Paul ever wrote. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. That word, that phrase, loved this present world, it's the word agape that he uses there. He loves the world unconditionally. And it is possible for you, having followed after the Lord, having loved the Lord, having sought after the Lord, like Demas, to say, you know what? I'm going to love the world. I'm going to love it unconditionally. I'm going to forsake everything else. It's possible. And so here's what I would say to you. You can be that person who says, God's called me. I recognize it. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to honor him. I'm going to surrender to him. Or you can be that person who says, you know what? I love the world. I'm, going to wa- I'm not going to walk in wisdom. I'm going to walk in the way that seems right to me. I'm going to walk in the way that floats my boat. It's your choice. God gives it to you. You can choose either one. He said, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Choose life. 